Welcome to Reset with Tom, the podcast. I'm Tom Metcalf, and each week I'll be sitting down to chat with an inspirational guest, talking all things life and what it is that defines each and every one of us. This is realness to the core, unfiltered, all cards on that table. Everyone has a superpower. Everyone has been seen as motivational by someone else, and that's the point of this pod, making you realize that you are a badass superhero. And you should be taking pride in that and talking about your unique story. Yes. So let's get to it, beautiful people. Today, I am joined by a woman who has conquered many feats in her life, from climbing mountains to swimming the stretch of the English Channel. That's right. 10 half marathons, seven marathons, seven half Ironmans, six full Ironmans, triathlon after triathlon, cycled from London to Paris in 24 hours. Oh my gosh, okay, I'm out of breath, Jesus. And author of a beautiful human story, Holly's Road to Kona. And she's raised around 15,000 pounds in fundraising for charity over the years. The Iron Geek, Holly Craddock, you have run me dry. <laughs> you are astounding, and I am so happy you're here on the podcast. So, Holly, how are you? How are you doing? Oh, good. Wow, that was a nice intro. Thanks. I'm normally oh. known as a Harry Potter geek, so I'll, I'll take the I'll take the Iron Geek. Take it, take it. I love that. So you're doing good, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, thank you. And you? Yes, I'm. Um, I'm good. I am braving the t-shirt. I feel like I should have put a jumper on, but I went for a walk before and I was pretty hot. <laughs> Actually, on the walk, I had a little dog moment. Dog moment? Yes. So I was walking because I like to get a walk in so I can just freshen the brain up before we talk about all things life. And there was this spaniel with its owner and this spaniel was going mad right at, um, at this like artificial snowman mad it was like jumping up it was barking barking but the woman the owner she was kind of just stood there and letting it do it so i don't know why but i was walking past and i just went no <laughs> and i pointed do you ever have that we just have a moment where you're not in control and then the dog stopped and it sat and then that was it and then i kept walking but i felt a real what did, the, what did the woman say? Is no, that she, the undone she, thing? You don't like, you don't get angry at other people's dogs or children, but you know. She didn't say anything because that was what was weird. That was, well, she wasn't doing anything before. You know, it was very hologram esque. But yeah, I thought that was quite power of the dogs. Maybe you should get a dog. Oh, I would love a dog. Love a dog, but not just yet. Not just yet. Was yours eventful in the same way? Uh, no, dropping the kids off at school and Ooh. yeah. Mum duties. Which is always fun and eventful in its own right. But I'm probably more shouting at kids than dogs, so. Get in the car! Get your shoes on! <laughs> Get in. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I imagine it's quite a feat in itself just doing that school run. Yeah, it's fun getting three kids into various places. Well, I imagine all your kids are really well behaved. Yeah, yeah, they are pretty good, to be fair. I can't... Can't slate them. I can't badmouth them too much. They are very good. Yeah. Have their moments, but... So do we. Exactly. It's so good to have you here, and I was really excited. As you talk about in your book, Holly's Road to Kona, it's, it does make such a difference when you actually see and hear people being incredibly open and vulnerable about what they have experienced. Firstly, before I guess we get into that, just tell us a bit about Holly. Tell us, talk us through all of this crazy shit you've done in your life. Oh, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> Go. <laughs> Tell me about you. Um, I kind of suppose I started on this crazy Ironman journey or, or fitness journey when I was, I think, at uni. And my mum was all, always on marathons. She's always been a really, really, really good runner. And I kept saying, oh, one day I'll, I'll do one of those. So it was kind of like always an aspiration to do a marathon. And then I got into doing one. I got a place through a charity when I was at uni. Didn't do enough training, didn't respect it. And I totally ballsed it up, if I'm totally honest. Like, I think I crawled across a line in like something like six hours. Like, it was just horrific. And my mum even, and by the mind, I was at uni and I was in uni at London and just basically enjoying being at uni. Somehow got across it. And I don't know how Iron Man had come into like, even my like peripheral vision. I think I'd watched a movie or a, a YouTube clip about, um, Iron Man and it was called the Hoyt family and it's this guy who um amazing dad who has a son with cerebral palsy or born with it and he just starts running with him and the 
the son ended up being able to speak not not speak but you know with her in a wheelchair and ended up saying um when I'm running I feel alive so that's it the dad just went okay we run went from running like the Boston Marathon which is you know an incredible feat to doing it in itself let alone pushing your son and they were they were doubters they were doubted a lot weren't they Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, and I mean, even and Rick, the dad, Rick, yeah, was asked, um, "You should do this on your own, like, because you're such a fast runner." And he was like, "No, I won't. I'll never run without my son." Um, and then they went from that to do um, triathlons, and then to do an Ironman. And he, he just, you know, he drags his son and a boy behind him, pushes him the, you know, the, on the bike, and then for the full marathon. And I had this thing that I want to do that, and I was like crying watching this YouTube clip. But after the marathon, my mum went to me and said, you'll never do that bloody Iron Man thing. And I think I just went, all right, watch me. It was more of a, it was not like an inspirational start of like, I'm raising loads of money for charity and I want to do an Iron Man. It basically was just, you tell me I can't do something, watch me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose that isn't like the most inspirational start of, of how to get, how I got into it, but that was how it started. <laughs> it's very real and it's very specific to you as a person, I suppose. You know, you were inspired by someone else to start that and then that sets off the chain, right? And then you have that added thing of your mum, you know, your mum saying, you know, you can't do that. And you're like, you watch me, mum. <laughs> yeah, basically. For people that don't know just give us a explanation a description of what iron man are because people are going to be thinking tony stark marvel (laughs) right a lot of people aren't going to specifically know what you're doing you're not flying around that'd be great if you were yeah so an iron man is a 2.4 mile swim followed by a 112 mile bike and then a full marathon so 26.2 miles within 17 hours i believe some are a little bit shorter but majority are, are 17 hours and that time cut off is, is kind of like the whole history behind it and, and why the distances are what they are. I mean, it started off with a, a fight. Well, not a fight, an argument between a bunch of Navy officers who said, who's the fastest out of a swim, bike and a run? And, you know, the swimmer was like, it's, you know, the swimmer bike, obviously. So they all got together and they basically ended up doing, it started in Hawaii and they did, there was a race, which was two 2.4 mile swim around the island. And then it was a 112 mile bike ride. It was the top to the end of the of the island. And then it was the Honolulu Marathon, which is 26.2 miles. And that's how it ended up. I think it started with, I think it was seven or seven or to 10 people ended up doing it. And the last finisher was the swimmer. So it's the shortest distance, I suppose, really, in reality. Well, in kind of relation. Yeah, so that he ended up coming in around 17 hours. And then it, from then on in, the World Championship has been based in Hawaii. Not the same island now, but it's in the, uh, the big island, so which is Kona. Okay. Why? So that's why it's Holly's Road to Kona. Yeah, because at first, like that was, that was enlightenment for me because I was trying to recall what I thought Kona was at first. I don't know what I originally thought. I thought it was like an item of clothing. Not an item of clothing because it doesn't yeah. really make sense. Once you get the history behind where this actually came from, you know, and you wouldn't predict Hawaii. And I love that story of the fight as well. It's kind of like... Oh, it's just a bunch of drunk Navy officers getting together, being like, oh, I'll beat you, I'll beat you. And then you've now got this, you've got this mass, like, I mean, it's it's huge now, like almost too big Some like sometimes now. Like I have my own little gripes with Iron Man as a brand now, but it is a massive brand. And that's what it's becoming. There's thousands across the world. Kona is is where the world championship is. And it, that's kind of where it's... To get there is like this, you know, it's the pinnacle of your, I suppose, Ironman career if you ever get there. And you have to train. I mean, you have to be on that train from the north to the south. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's a long, it's a long way. It's more about the journey of getting to do the Ironman than it is actually. It's a long time on your own as well, on the bike, and a lot of long time on training. You know? Yes. And to clarify, you, there are there are many Ironman competitions globally. Yeah, yeah. You have the main one which you qualify for in Kona. Exactly that. Yeah. Which is extremely difficult to get into, right? Yeah, yeah. So they'll be they'll do it through age group roll down. Depending what age group there are, depends how many slots there are. I mean, the bigger age groups obviously got more, but then you've got more competition. I mean, if you look at the male 35 to 39 and the male 40 to 45, you're looking at hundreds of people who enter. Uh, you know, in that age group, and you might get four slots within that. 
and these guys are you know fast like they're nearly heading up pros times like it's it's insane so depending on how many people enter per age group depends on how many how many slots there are so in mine for example when I was doing it there was one slot because there was just so few people doing it not many 18 to 24 year olds are going out and doing Ironmans it's just yeah, it's intense. And I find, you know, with a lot of sports like this, you know, when you are technically in your own age group, but you are against the whole bunch. Because I can even remember doing uh, spiring in like karate when I was younger. And I remember turning when you would turn 16 and then all of a sudden you're fine fucking like hulks. Yeah, you'd be <laughs> up against like a 42 year old pushed into this ring. I'm like, are you having a laugh? Where am I going to punch? But you just do it and it actually it builds you up because, because you don't necessarily put yourself down, especially when you finish that. You're like, yeah, I did that. It wasn't just people from my own specific age or ability. You're really going up against the whole pack. What is it like when the gun... Wait, well, I don't even know if it's a gun. That might be too intense. What yeah, happened? There's a gun, yeah, is it a gun? Well, it's like a... A horn, so it's a horn, but yeah, I mean, Kona they have an actual cannon, so but they don't do that everyone in the UK, wow. like or or around the world, but yeah, it is a cannon. In, in oh Kona. my god, so what happens because I'm just picturing Hunger Games, you know, you stood on your plinth and then you just you just <laughs> all running, it is run, yeah. Do some people not make it through that first run? Oh, 100%. Well, maybe not the first run, but lots of people don't make it through the swim. Um, all the swims I've done have been in the in the sea. Yeah. So there are ones that you could do in a canal, which are a lot calmer, I suppose. Just to just to make it clear, when we say they didn't make it, they they just they just gave they quit and they came back. Oh no, said, well, yeah, either they quit or oh, they swallowed too. Like there, there was one year in when I did it in Wales, where the conditions were so bad on the swim that people, I think, we lost about just by the swim alone. I think about thirty percent of of everyone dropped out or weren't able to finish because they either swallowed too much water because the waves are coming in and they just obviously were being sick or they just physically couldn't do the swim. Okay, yeah. That's kind of caveat, I suppose, of doing a sea swim. But yeah, and, and then also like even after, because they get on the bike, but because they swallow so much water, I've even like people that I was, who were really competitive and I was competitive with at the time. One of the girls had to, she did the recycle, but was then by the run, she was just puking up because of, because of the water that she inhaled in the swim. And these are good athletes. I mean, yeah, I mean, you must have heard like last year at the at the Ironman in Dublin, even last year just in UK alone, I think three people died during the swim. My gosh. The, yeah, they, you know, it's, and they've actually postponed or cancelled uh, the Ironman in Dublin next year because of the kind of backlash that they've kind of faced. Should, should it have even gone ahead because it was that rough? But I'm really on the fence with it. I kind of feel like you know what you're getting yourself into. And if you make these things more approachable to people and you're trying to get numbers in, you're not making people aware of what they're actually doing. Like, it is a hard sport and you shouldn't take it. Yes, it's great. People are inspired to do it. And getting people into the sport is absolutely brilliant. But surely there's got to be an understanding of yourself of what you're putting yourself through. And do, like I did, I'm a strong swimmer, but I went to open water training from the get-go. Like in London, I was having training for what you do in the in the sea, what you do when you swim open water like all the tactics like there's a great guy called Dan Bullock who I went and saw swim for try and I was you know I was already a good swimmer but I, I made sure that I was prepared for it I'm opinionated but maybe I'm the controversial bit that I mean it's very it's double-edged sword no but I think you should be and you have a right to be opinionated because it's very much part of your life and I think like so many this is an extreme sport and it's it's the same if you were attempting a dangerous peak you know, you look at places like Everest or where or whatnot. It's respecting it. It's respecting the distance. It's respecting the, what you're doing. It's the respect and for of nature. nature. Respect for nature. Ooh, yeah. Look at that snap! Thank you, nature. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it is, it is. It's a respect for nature, and it's that admittance and acceptance of what you're putting yourself into, in for. And it is heartbreak. It's so heartbreaking when you hear of people that have lost their lives doing something that they love. You know, it's it's really difficult with extreme sports that's a whole whole other thing but i think it is important to be to have your opinion you know your opinions on, on these things not to be i mean i don't know that i think some of them were kind of they could have well been um talented athletes so like i said the girl i was going against before like she pulled out on this on the run because of it but i just think yeah there's i don't think we should be cancelling every race or you know every swim because it's i mean i do think if it's too rough then they should have taken the decision but yeah 
Yeah, it's a bit of a legal battle going on, so I probably shouldn't say too much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I got you. I got you. We don't want to get yeah, don't get locked up. A lot of your focus going into your book is about your first. Um, you explain. First Ironman. Yeah, so I did. I went to Wales, which is Tenby, which is, in my opinion, the best Ironman there is. You know, them saying that, and it was. I mean, it was kind of one of the local ones. Like the other, the only options in the UK was Wales or Bolton. Okay, that, that's contrasting. Tenby kind of appealed more to me, um, so I basically went down there, and I did a fair bit of training there to get there. But I did so just previous that I did a half Ironman down in Exmoor, and I actually didn't make the bike cut off. There are cutoffs um, throughout the day, so this shows that I wasn't. That, like it took me a lot to train like I'm not a natural athlete um and I actually missed the bike cut off by I mean it was five minutes but it was still wow or two minutes or something it was but it was still a cut off and I still missed it and I was absolutely devastated I don't know what spurred me on to then the following six months I was like well I'm gonna do Ironman Wales which sounded really freaking stupid because you've just missed a cut off for the half so what are you on about going to try and do a full and I kind of really put everything into that you know, I was working, I was still the long hours in broadcast and everything, but it was up at four in the morning, driving to work, going to the gym before work, teaching myself how to cycle properly on a Watt bike, just staring at stats. Like, and I didn't have a coach. It was just me, myself, just trying to kind of basically learn to cycle better because that was where I obviously failed. A lot of time on your own, but anyway, I got to Ironman. The idea was that my mum then thought maybe she might do this because she's quite determined. So. We got the whole family to come and watch me in Tembe. So we got a big manor house uh, just outside Tembe. I mean, I can't remember where now. There was my mum, my dad, my sister, my brother-in-law with their, uh, yeah, four children, my brother and sister-in-law and their two kids, and then my boyfriend at the time, and then my best friend, who I've always called my Ironman groupie. She's then from there on income to every single one. So, yeah, we were all in this big manor house. Yeah, we went off for dinner. I kind of had, we had a nice meal and then we went, I went to bed and then I was up at four in the morning to go to the swim start. So my mum and dad came with me, my boyfriend and um, my friend came with me. I cycled past the, where we were staying on the route, on the cycle route. So as I was kind of cycling past, I was kind of wondering, the idea was everyone's going to be outside, obviously cheering me on and nobody was there. And I was like, well, what the fuck? Why is nobody there? Like, and I remember just seeing like these silhouettes of my niece and nephew, my youngest niece and nephew, and my sister and I kind of ran out and tried to wave to me, but nobody else was there. So, and then I didn't see, I knew at that point I wasn't going to see anybody or any family again for at least, what, three hours while I went off into the Pembrokeshire mountains or whatever. So that was a bit of like, okay. That affected you in the moment, I suppose. Cheers, guys. You had one job. Like, <laughs> you had just had to wake up like and come and see me literally walk out your room and just wave to me so I suppose then you're kind of left alone with your own thoughts and you're just like well you mean it was a fleeting split second that I never saw them but it was the one that those little cheers is when you're doing such a race is, is what you need and I didn't see them again and then as you you come back into town and my dad was meant to be waiting for me at the bottom before I went off and did another loop and again went past the house and my dad wasn't there and I was like great so they haven't made it into town. Like all these planned positions that we'd made have all just totally failed. Got back on. And then I think by this point I was just, I was just struggling a bit, but I didn't, I was never going to stop. It was just a case of like, you always go through, it's like an marriage, you always hit a wall. I think because I didn't have that support, I just felt a bit like load, even more lonely. But anyway, went back and I went past the house again, expecting to see somebody. And I just kind of saw my dad walking like around the, where the house was. And then he spotted me and just kind of waved. And I almost stopped. And I don't know what stopped me from stopping because I wanted to be like, what the fuck's going on? And I almost stopped, but I didn't for some reason because I think I was in a little bit of pain, but I just, greater things, I don't know. But anyway, I didn't stop despite wanting to. Got round the, the bike, racked my bike. I didn't see, I didn't see, no, I didn't see anyone else going into transition. I just kind of got a run gear on and I went off. And I think it was about three miles in or two miles in, maybe I saw my boyfriend and my mate who was on the run route. You see them very briefly before running up a big hill for 10 kilometers and running back around. You might, I might see them on the way back down again. And I was like, what's going on? Where is everybody? 
and Yuli just said, oh, they're, they're coming, they're coming. I was like, okay, but at the time, and as the laps went on, I was getting really more and more pissed off because I was like, we're a big family. We're also very close. So that also means that you argue a fair bit or you have little disagreements. And it's I'm always just like, why can't they just, just for one day, why couldn't they just like be happy? Why couldn't they just be friends? Like, why couldn't we just Obviously, get you, along? you've been in your thoughts for a, a lot now by this point. How many hours into the into the race are you, would you say? uh probably about a good eight hours wow yeah okay so i did like one lap and then i went down and then as i was running through the town again like i saw my mum and dad and i said where is everybody and mum just again said they'll be at the finish they'll be at the finish like they're coming they'll be at the finish i was like okay like fine and then i did another lap and i kept asking yulia like what's going on she's like no nothing they're coming my boyfriend was just deadly silent didn't say much like and then Carried on and got to the finish. Did it in kind of, well, I did it in an okay. I was never going to win anything. Like, that wasn't the aim. I did it about 12 hours. Really. Wow. 12, or 12 and a half hours, something like that, my first one. And I was obviously really, really chuffed. And then I said to everyone, like, and I was looking at, like, left and right along the finish shoot. There was, there was nobody there. There was no family there. And I know it's busy, but I was like, no, there's nobody there. And I got kind of through the finish line, had my picture. Euphoria was, like, out of this world. You want to, as you're running down the finish line, you want to cry. You think you're going to blub and awful. And the second you finish, it's like, fuck, that was amazing. Like, where can I sign up again? Even though you're literally like killing yourself, you're in so much pain. And I saw Dan, my boyfriend, and I just said, like, where's everybody? And my mum butted in and said, we'll tell you with the car. I was like, okay, what the fuck's going on? You got to then pick up all your bags. Like, there's a post race kind of like they put little food on. So, but I was in the mood for that. I watched what was going on got my bikes and then my boyfriend met me and took my bags off me and was walking my bike down to transition or down to our, bike, our car sorry and as we were walking down there I kept saying like what's going on and he was just like oh dad I'll tell you like stop I was like why can't they just be why can't they just keep it together for one fucking day like it's just one day and then we got to the car and then my mum I said like what's going on and mum just said Rosie's dead and I just this is my niece who's three years age difference from me um, who basically was like a sister to me and I just dropped everything and apparently I don't remember it but apparently I started swearing at my mum which is something that I just wouldn't I mean I'm, I have a potty mouth I get that but call it telling my mum and dad to fuck off and stuff is something that I would just never I would just never do um I don't remember any of that all I just I think I apparently just dropped everything I'm kind of I've got little tidbits from like Dan uh not too much now because we broke up and I didn't really revisit that um, until I wrote my book. But Yulia kind of said, yeah, you just kind of went mental. And I was like, in my head, I don't remember going mental. I thought I just dropped my stuff and went silent. But I didn't, apparently. But it's, I think a lot of people say that when they go through trauma, they just basically just, they just forget everything. Like, yeah, we got back in the car, take me back to the manor house, well, where we were staying. They'd moved us from the manor house, somebody else. Emma and Des had gone home, my my sister and that, all the families had gone home. Yeah, so I went from this like massive high to this unbelievable low. And we got back and we were staying in this different this different uh, house at that point. And I remember just didn't really want to talk to anybody. I just went and lay in the bath and just pretend it was cold and eventually I think they had to prise the lock open and was like, Ollie, you need to you need to get out or talk or something. So yeah, it was that was kind of how it all started. Like, I suppose the journey started because then as I was looking through my phone that night, people were, like, congratulating me because I was part of a triathlon club and I had no idea about Coda by this point. I was just doing an Ironman. And someone had kind of written on this group, Holly, you came third in your age group. You should go along to roll down and see if you qualified. I was like, qualified for what? They were like, well, for, for the, the World Championship in Hawaii. I was like, oh, okay. And I just... Something in my head went, okay, well, I'll go along and I'll do it for Rose if I get it. So that was kind of what I did. I walked in the next day to this, everyone's so happy. I mean, just this sullen face, like, to this world down where I had to sit and wait. They did they did it in a weird way that year. But if you took the slot, the first person could take the slot and then you could go up and pay for it and then you could just basically go if you wanted to. And I kept trying to say to the women, like, can you just let me know if this person's taking the slot? Because I'm like, and again, I didn't, I don't talk about stuff. So I didn't say why I was so desperate. If I'd have actually said to her, look, 
this has just happened to me. Can you just let me know out of, if this person's taking stock or not? Because otherwise I'm going to go. I'm not going to sit through an hour's worth of happy people getting their medals and qualifying if I'm not actually going to, you know, I'm just going to sit in the corner. Anyway, she wouldn't tell me. Uh, it turns out that she did take the slot. So I basically just sat for an hour of that for no reason. And then by that point made this mission that I was like, okay, well, I'll get there next year or somehow or eventually I'll get to Kona and I'll do it for Rose, basically. So that was kind of where the, the ramp in the journey went from. Wow, Holly. Firstly, yeah, firstly, thank you just for your your honesty. And I think I'm incredibly honoured. I feel privileged to hear the story of, you know, of your day and to hear about um, Rose. Everyone listening will be as well. I think it's a, it's a really important thing. And I also think how you talk about that day and how you, and, and, and I imagine some things I can take from my life, you know, you picture it extremely vividly. We remember where we were. We were, I mean, obviously, like you say, just after you find out that horrific life-changing news, you know, you do also get blackout. <laughs> which is terrifying. A lot of people couldn't have handled that day in full how you did. And I mean, everyone handles things differently, whether that is even classed as handling, like what is, you know. And I think that everything, obviously that is a huge moment in your life, your biggest moment, right? Yeah, pretty much. And everything you're doing is for your uh, for your beautiful niece or your sister. That is the the, the big focus of your book and it's a big focus of your story and I just think it's admirable I wanted to say that first because it is it is extremely admirable and I think many people wouldn't be able to take that into words sorry take that to pen and paper because you've spoken about it in your blog and your book but to talk about it I think that's what um it's a huge thing that people need to take from this and it's all on a path of healing and whatnot, but it's also just championing that person. The people that the people that we do lose that we do lose at points, telling other people about them and keeping that love, that love alive. I can only imagine how and it's such a massive contrast in the fact that you completed your first Ironman that day in 2013, right? Yeah. And on the same day, you know, you lost this beautiful person from your life and these these things happen in life and it's so incredibly unfair this is 10 years ago isn't it now 2013 yeah, yeah 2023 yeah, we hit 10 years in september yeah. in september uh what's important as well and i know you do this as well is like when you look at that 10 years right and you look at how you have had to deal with your grief your loss, just everything, because it's a whole spectrum of fucking craziness. And you look at that 10 years, I hope you take so much self-appreciation from that as well, because because it is it's a huge thing for people to to get through loss, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's I think one of the things I said before is that there's also a massive like taboo around it. Like no one everyone's fighting their own little battle. No one's actually sharing that battle. You know, it's just kind of well siphon her up a lip and, and you move on like we're all facing our own shit let's just let's just move on through it but yeah it doesn't like it hasn't really gone away really close to my sister and she's lost her daughter like a rose turns 30 next year so it's kind of you know these it's you know it's kind of an everyday thing but it's all about you know the anniversaries the, the birthdays the christmases you know they're things that i mean that hurts a lot of people i did kind of speak about it in the book and i get everyone's grief is is totally different like but I think when it's an out of order, out of order death is when it really hits the home. Like that's what I think is the hardest thing to kind of is to kind of cope with. And I'm not saying like I could do, but like you know, you expect your parents to die. That's the order it's meant to go in. Your grandparents die, but my dad died. It was horrific, and you know I've had you know friends die and everything. But it's this out of order death, especially your own child, that just feels so so wrong that you just can't really ever get over it. It's huge to boo over it about not being able to talk. And and also, like, 
you know, comparing as well, like no one's worse off for losing. I don't want that to come across like this out of order death is that my loss is better than yours or greater than yours. It's not like that. It's the thing, it's just even just airing that so you're grieving is kind of, of course. What is, is something. Like you say, everyone's grieving is personal and it's, it's, it's like everything in your life. You do things one way different to every single other person, whether that's just one thought. We, if we all had the exact replica dealing methods of grief, then I don't think that that would be beneficial. If everyone was dealing in the exact same way, I feel like that it's a massive part of your story, how you do it. Obviously, what's the most important thing is that we do get to a point where we have to live with our grief. But I believe that grief changes down the line. I think what we feel immediately, and this is obviously my, my own perception of, of it, what we feel immediately and in those coming months and years even, you know, is something, it's always raw. But I think that's, it evolves into, I think grief evolves into life. I think it becomes a, a part of your living and you learn yeah, to yeah. live with that person you've lost, but just, you know, just not in person. They're in your life in different ways. So it's been like the first kind of year, like I think I did, well, I did totally change. Like grief totally changed me. But like it was one of the quotes in the book is like, because I started every chapter with a quote that I really felt summed the chapter up. And it was like the problem with grief or loss is that you wake up every single day and it happens every single day. So every morning I was waking up and being like, almost sleeping was better because it was not real. And then I woke up and I was like, shit, Rosie's dead. Shit, that happened. And then it was like, fuck, I've got to try and get through this day without wanting to just crawl back into bed again. And it was just this constant monotony. And then that kind of, and then that kind of started going into more like crashes. So every kind of three, like every month, I'd be okay. And then it would, then I'd have a crash for about a week. And then it would, the crash would come two months and then three months and then six months. And I think we've kind of got to a point where the crashes happen more. Actually, quite sporadically, not normal anniversaries, actually, weirdly enough, but just randomly now, not as much. And there is this kind of quote that I did find, and I can't, I don't know it to entirety now, I should have looked it up, but it's basically like, grief is like a chasm, and it opens up this, like, almost like an earthquake, it opens up and it cracks, and the crack's huge. And slowly over time, we don't, the crack never closes, we just start putting more stuff over the top, like we put more bridges, more bits of wood, more plasters, and eventually, like, it, it just closes up a little bit, but not, the crack's still there, we just put more shit over the top. I mean, not more shit, that's definitely not the quote, more shit over the top, but that's kind of like where it's going with it. It's just, you know, you just end up putting more plasters over it. And sometimes the plasters come off again and it's just how you, that's how you kind of cope. It is a good quote. Father shit. <laughs> Maybe I should find the actual quote now. <laughs> you did that person justice. <laughs> yeah, I'm really, really sorry. You're like, who the fuck is this? <laughs> Oprah. <laughs> I know, right? You're completely right. I see, I think grief, it is a great, Metaphor, I, I, I see it as um, like trauma or anything. I mean, grief in its way is trauma. It's this black hole. It's this sinkhole. And once you fall into it, you are falling. You are falling and you become so stuck and it's black and it's dark and it's all encompassing and you're just falling and falling and falling. And when we get to the point, a point of acknowledgement, like true acknowledgement of what has happened and that actually we can't keep falling into this pit. You can choose to fill that hole. And I believe we learn to fill that hole with positives. We fill it with memories. We fill it with beautiful songs. We fill it with moments of, and however people choose to deal with their grief, you know, it could just be having a moment where you have a nice quick chat with, with this person. Or, you know, I, I've had moments quite common where, I've, you know, I love stargazing and stuff. And I'll, I always have that moment and I'll use it as a little opportunity to talk to whoever it might be that I've lost. Or you might plant a tree. You might, there, there's photographs. There are all these beautiful aspects of this life, this life that's been taken, which is horrendous and it's awful. And so many people, every, everyone, everyone on the planet has it and they always have. But when we can fill that hole 
with these really beautiful things in honor of that person. And then we choose to live in honor of that person, which you do every step of the day, every step, Holly, like we're doing that person justice. We're doing them proud. And, and that's really important. I suppose yeah, it's trying to find a way. And that's why that the Iron Man thing just kind of, which yeah, I totally changed. Like I said, I was fitting up with my boyfriend, which I, I've even said this to my husband now. I said, if, I, if Rose hadn't have died, I genuinely don't think I'd have split up. And it's not like I'm not grateful for the life I've got, but there's always this, there is always this thing that if, if Rose hadn't have died, I wouldn't have met my husband. I wouldn't have had these kids that I've got. It's a really strange kind of sliding doors moment. Like if this hadn't have happened, then yeah, where would you be now? You know, I ended up quitting my job, moved abroad for a year or two, you know, and that's ironically where I met, met my husband. Um, so it's kind of, it, yeah, it does totally change you. You know, it's this kind of like weird thing. If it didn't happen, where would I be now? And would it be the same? Probably not. Doesn't make it any better or worse, but it it's kind of a very bittersweet like feeling, I suppose, that it's all because of one this one event that everything changed, I suppose. But then I kind of need to applaud that as well because I've done something good out of it. I suppose if I'd have stopped on the bike when I saw my dad, I wouldn't have carried on. Something told me to just carry on. And I was carried on. Mm-hmm. And it was my, my parents' decision to not tell me on, on race day. Because they had, like, obviously when I was running, they could have told me. And it was my parents' decision to not tell me. And my boyfriend, the reason why he didn't speak to me or tell me much during the race is because he was the one who wanted to tell me. He was angry that I wasn't going to be able to find out. And he felt like it was my right to know and then make my own decision if I wanted to carry on or not. But they knew that if I did find out, there was absolutely no way that you'd hear that news and be like, oh, I'm going to go run a four-hour marathon on my own with your own thoughts, seeing nobody else. Like, it just wouldn't happen. So they kind of made the decision to to not tell me because of that, for that reason. And like, am I thankful for that? I still don't really know. Like, what would I have done if I'd have found out? Was Dan right that maybe I should have found out, made my own decision? Like, you know, everyone went home and they dealt with their own stuff. I mean, you know, my parents found their grandfather, granddaughter was dead. And then they had to just carry on walking around the town supporting me. Yeah. They had to get the fire en- engine to come up on race day, which is a closed road, to pick the body up. And, you know, all these, like, logistics that I only really found out about once I wrote the book. And I had to get my dad to, to write it all down. And then I got my my friend's side of it, like how she felt. But yeah, I think there's so many like little sliding doors moments that happen. There are. Grief definitely totally changed my trajectory of life, 100%. Like I never would have quit my job. I never would have just gone off and moved to Lanzarote to fucking just ride my bike. I remember coming, I was buying a house at the time and I just got like a new job, like a new, in a new department. I just went, no, sorry, screw the house, screw the job. I'm going to go and be on my bike and just ride mountains. That's what I kind of did. It is sliding doors. I think um, it's also important to mention, like we do, we get worried when we say things like this awful thing happened, but then these things wouldn't have happened. I went to do this, 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 because we, again, force this guilt onto us that it's like we're saying, "Mm, yeah, well, it's, you know, that happened in it loud because it's not to do with that. You know, it is literally, it's us stating the obvious and it's not being afraid to to give that perception because there's, even when I think back, like all of my traumatic experiences led me on to, to completely, done completely different paths. Like, and it's not saying that whatever happened, like when my granddad passed, you know, that was piled with, and it's when things are piled as well, that was piled with a load of other stuff. And then I got therapy from that. And if I hadn't done that, my trajectory would have been so different. I burnt out in London. I've been home back home for five years because I burnt out in the city. I got like attacked one night, like at knife point. And then I also got kicked out of my house and I had a really bad end to a job. And then all of that, you know, I moved home and I was like, I need to go fucking traveling. And then I went traveling and then I fucking came out gay. Like that came from, yeah, I came back gay. <laughs> it's like I the, think I asked you, did I ask you a question when you were at work? And I said, why are you always surrounded with these beautiful women? Like, who's your girlfriend? You went, Holly, I'm gay. I was like, oh shit, sorry. Oh my gosh, story of my life. 
And I knew when I came back that would not have happened. I would have stayed, I would have stayed so closeted, so terrified, so unhappy for the rest of days. I needed that. And with these things, obviously that's a completely different example. None of that would have happened if I wasn't attacked. I wouldn't have had to kick up the ass to need to escape the country and go. Well, it's basically we both did. We both just escaped. Yeah, we ran. Like in a, but not <laughs> in a negative, it doesn't have to be a negative sense. Like you ran away. I think actually it was a good thing. It was a, it was a good thing. I suppose, yeah, I'd have just kind of, that kind of break. I remember being so terrified to tell my parents though. Because I think it was the fear of that you look like you're running away. But I was like, I'm not running away. I'm actually doing first time something for myself. And I did have this kind of, I did have the Ironman kind of aim. Like I was, I was going out there to try and qualify or trade for Kona. And Lanzarote is known for being a, a mecca of Ironman and triathlon. And in hindsight, you run into towards something, right? Yeah. I wasn't doing it for a bad reason to go and, go and hide under a bridge and do whatever else. I was just, it was more like a fit, it was more of like a fitness kind of retreat, I suppose, just. And I was lucky I was able to do it. I had the support to be able to do it. Imagine going all the way to Lanzarote just to sit under a bridge and that would be so hot. (laughs) Are you looking for one-on-one coaching in self-discovery, confidence building and a positive mindset reset? Well, look no further, my friend. And good on you wanting to make a change. That's why I'm here. Drop by my website and fill out an online form for a free 30-minute consultation with me, obviously. We'll talk through what it is in your life you want to change and how we can get you thriving as an authentic version of you. I did it, and so can you. All I ask is you bring honesty, you show up as yourself, and in turn, I'll give you the support you need to transform your life, you beautiful badass. Go to www.resetwithtom.com and follow the link for your free consultation. I'm a friend. This is what I love to do and I'm here to help you. See you there. Obviously, we're talking about grief and how people deal with them and how was those first stages where what, what were you relying on? Like, if you don't mind me asking and... How did that generally affect you moving forward? I think uh, I mentioned I had I always had that Iron Man kind of goal in my head, and I think Iron Man kind of saved me, and having that saved me. And then obviously moving to Lanzarote, and that was still the goal, that was still the focus, was to try and I suppose give me something. And I think that was what got me through. But it's it's kind of the I drew myself into the kind of the exercise, and there's there's definitely this link between. I've actually heard, I read about my book. I did research on it in there. And I was listening to a podcast the other week as well about it. And just saying that, and I think you mentioned it when you go for your walks in the morning, like there's this definite link between exercise, even if it is just a walk or getting out and clearing your head. There's this link between that and grief or or anything or, go, or anything you're going through. If anyone was to give anyone advice, it would just be kind of to, to do that. And I know a lot of people who've, even who didn't consider themselves runners or walkers or anything, have ended up, started to to run or started to do something it's kind of and it's the endorphins you get after doing it it's how good you feel physically and mentally but I think for me that was the the only way for me to deal with it and to take to take that time out from from work and I know I'm incredibly lucky to have been able to do that but like like you if you're traveling I think sometimes you do it because you have to and, and it was good and I, I don't regret yeah, I may have stepped myself back from my actual career, but I don't regret doing it for myself. Undeniably true that exercise has a positive effect on your mental health. And it took me a while to realise that in terms of I've always loved walking and stuff. But hell, like uh, the, hu- the human race started off outside. You know, we have that yeah. organic connection with the world and we naturally feel better when we're outside. Like if you feel really shit, you are going to feel better if you're stood outside feeling shit than if you're stood inside feeling shit. (laughs) Once people, depending on on whatever exercise or activity, once you do get outside and you start really taking that on, it it does have a beneficial impact on you. It really does. Really, really does. On the other end of that, there are the negative coping mechanisms that are unavoidable for so many of us. 
which you obviously you obviously had as well with your you know with your experience tell me about that uh i mean alcohol is i mean i love a drink i still love a drink but i think i've always been brought up with a household that like my, my dad likes nice white wine and i like learned to love nice white wine i call myself a wine snob i would never go to a bar and just order a glass of wine it only has to, it has to be like a bottle that i could see and i know gets me looks and stuff i won't ever just have a I don't know, a Pinot or a Sauvignon. It's just not, it's just not my, I just don't like them. It's not me. You're not going up and ordering a Sav. Glass of Sav, please. Yeah, it's just, I actually don't like the taste of Sauvignon Blanc. It's something snobby about it. I just think it just tastes like nettles and I hate it. I've tried many times. They're awful. But I think I like, I like going and looking at a wine list and having a a look at it and perusal and then, and then deciding what I like. It's more of like a whole experience of, of that side of wine and, grapes and everything so when I before I moved to Lanzarote I got into this kind of rut that where I lived with my ex-boyfriend we had this little corner shop just down the road and I was buying like two to three maybe four bottles of red wine at a time and I was buying red wine because it was basically just the easiest to to sit next to me on the sofa and just keep pouring it was there was no real enjoyment it was just drinking to absolute excess oblivion and numbness which is and if when that ran out, it would probably go on to vodka again, something mixed very quite simply that with the easiest thing that's possible. But I think I don't enjoy red wine, if I'm honest. Like, it might oh. be, I'll have, I have a glass if there's nothing left in the house, if there's no white wine left. And I'll, but I'll have like a glass and I'll be done with it. It's not something I enjoy. So the fact that I was having it to this absolute extreme and the only reason I was having it is because white wine should be in the fridge and I, I could just sit and just keep pouring. I think, but it took myself to actually, I think it took me to actually realise this wasn't healthy. And I don't know what my boyfriend at the time thought, but maybe he kind of thought it was a coping mechanism and it would it would go away. He wasn't enabling it at all, but it was more like, I think I realised that this wasn't a healthy way to be. So I kind of stepped away from that. And I don't really drink my wine since, to be fair. Oh, I love a glass of red. Uh, it, like in bouts. Bouts in bouts. Is that is, is that the word in bouts? I like red wine in bouts. It's important, yeah. And when you get to that uh, realization as well of what it's doing to you, I think when you're going through a period of like sadness or whatever, and you rely on on your coping mechanisms as well. I don't know if it's similar for you, but when it's tied with loneliness, the bottle or whatever becomes invalid filler in that gap you think it's kind of there filling that void because yeah I used to do the same I would I would finish work this is from like 21 and I would always have to go to the office and get four cans like pint cans and I'd have to drink them and I wouldn't even really be eating either and then I would smoke weed as well and I would get or I would get back from a night shift a 12-hour night shift and I would sit in the garden and I would do a bong and then I would go to bed because those, and a lot of the times it would like make me sick because it was, it became so poisonous, but it was routine because it was like making me feel something. You can have a good relationship with alcohol. It's like so many things. It's like food. And obviously a lot of people then completely wipe it out of their lives, which is amazing. And it's definitely the right move for some people. And I think that's that's massively inspiring as well. And you would have come across people um, doing the Ironmans or marathons that will have this story, you know, of, of, of kicking, the, kicking the alcohol or kicking the cigarettes or whatever it might be, heavy dr- class A drugs or whatever. That's what I'd love to be able to. I, I don't think I've got, I have to say at the moment, I think I've gone... I am drinking an awful lot at the moment, but I'm not that lazy that I'm having my bottle of red wine on the side next to me and like may as well just get a straw. But yeah, I think it, I've got to kind of, I was, I'm not in the rut place I was. I'm just kind of more doing it because my husband's a chef and he cooks really good food and it goes very well with white wine. So, you know, and job's stressful and I've got kids and it's just quite nice to chill out and relax. But I have kind of got to start and get to a point now that, I'm doing that classic thing now that it's the new year coming and I'm going to start training again in the new year, trying to fit it around stuff and trying to aim for a marathon again, just to try and get myself doing something like, and I'm, I'm always a person that needs something to focus on. I can't just 
go out for a run for the sheer enjoyment of it because it's just not like I'm just not that person you know and I haven't got the time on my hands to go and go out swimming which is what I do like doing because it's just you know with kids and that I know it's, it's just not an excuse it just doesn't really happen it's just really difficult to to do it and I you know I want to try and get some swims in but my main focus is just going to be the easiest thing for me to be able to do is to go for a run I've got a run buggy and there's nothing to say I can't do it with kids because I did do a marathon a couple of years ago when the boys I've got twin boys when they were babies and I was just I mean I was running 15 miles pushing them in the buggy so I know it can be done it's just it's just trying to like notice when you're when you're kind of getting into a bit of a rut again or I think that's just a way of coping through life I suppose for me it's just a, or most people it's just kind of knowing when you've hit your lows and when you need to sort yourself out yeah and you know life gets busy and hell like you have an example of a busy life you know mum kids husband like full-on job all of this and I think when we get to those points where we're feeling the motivation start to start to drop we can take our experience from the previous time for example if you're doing workouts and you're doing them every day let's say you have a rest day but then a day becomes super busy and then you don't do one day and then you're kind of hard on yourself and then it gets the next day and it's so tempting to not do it again. It's like how we, how we reconstruct that so then we don't fall into that path. And it just comes with time. Like it's not something you just do. It just comes with that determination of what you were just, you know, everything you were just saying. Fuck that. I'm not going to keep not doing it day after day. Like with everything, I think it just takes it, it takes time. And I think it's fine for us to accept that, yeah, we have busy periods in our lives and it's not to go hard on ourselves. I think actually someone said this to me in the pub the other day. But I also don't want to be, it's almost like I've done loads of stuff in my past and that's great. But everyone's like, oh, but you're so fit. I'm like, but I'm not, I'm not necessarily that fit anymore. I'm not that person. Like, I do kind of just want to start. I think Nathan said it to me a few, my husband said it to me a few times, like, he stopped doing stuff for, I mean, what I did for Rose was like, you know, get into Kona and we didn't really talk about that much, but I did get to Kona. Yeah. Obviously. Oh my gosh. Um, what? I know we totally missed that part. Like we've gone through a massive tangent. Anyway, I did get to Kona, which was great. And the experience was great. I had the worst race in my life, but I had all my family there and some friends who thought, yeah, let's come and support Holly in Hawaii. Yeah. Amazing. Funny they picked that one. It was amazing. But I think that was for Rose. And I think I need to try and, do I want to do something for me? Whether it's an Iron Man again, I really don't know. But I want to try and do something for me. I think me. the fact that you're even saying that you should do something for you, Holly. Yeah, and I think I want to do the I want to do a marathon just to when I'm running or when I'm okay at running, I, I do enjoy getting out. It's just that initial now bit now is it's gonna be so hard to get back into it. Like hurts my lungs, hurts my legs. Like, but it's just a continuation. It's just getting used to it again. I know I can do it. It's just um, I did the I I did the Iron Man once, like, and I came from nothing. So I think, um, you know, I hate for so I could I could never do that. I was like, well, if you wanted it enough, you can. If anybody wants anything enough, they can. It is. It's the drive. It's the determination. And I mean, you're doing it for your for your younger self, right? Let's go back in time and look at those first. You know that that driven young girl who was like, yo. I'm going till the end, I'll die doing this. And even when you were talking about your 10 tours, I mean, this is insane. Can we just touch on this a second? Because I don't understand how this is legal. I think it's. I think it sounds amazing and I probably would have loved to do it. But you went to Wales, is this correct? So this is in your kind of college sixth form years. Yeah, this, yeah. 10 tours is Dartmoor, but yeah. 10 tours is Dartmoor and you do an army-led... It's 14 to 19-year-olds. You do an army-led how many miles through the... Well, it, it, the mileage kind of depends, but you're kind of given... The day before, you're given 10 tours that you have to go over. At the top of each tour, there's a checkpoint. And a tour, for people that don't know what a tour is, it's not like you're going to Rome and seeing the Colosseum. No, no, it's just a massive mountain. Like a big... And then some are bigger than others. And you know, Normally, they're down valleys. You go down the valley, you go back up, like... And there's different ways to get to them. Either go up the steep side or you can go the log track up. And it's just, they're just very boggy around it. And then at the top of them, they'll just have loads of uh, rocks. Which, I mean, it's kind of where the hands of the basketball and all of that. If you've seen like the infamous picture of the staple rock and all that. Carol, ba sorry, so, yeah, Carol Baskin, did, what did you say? No, 
the Hounds of the Baskerville from Sherlock Holmes. Carol Baskin. How has she made it in here? Amazing. I completely v- misheard that. Okay. Okay. Let's move. <laughs> a tour is known as a geomorphologist as either a castle or it's a large freestanding rock outcrop that rises abruptly from the surrounding smooth and gentle slopes of a rounded hill Ooh. summit. Sounds sexy. There we go. Okay. So that is the tour. T-O-R. That's the tour. T-O-R. But yeah, they're big. They're just big mountains. Some of them are bigger than others. Yeah, like, like people. Basically, you're just given 10 tours the day before and you basically have to orienteer or plan your route the day before to go round these things. And then there's ranges from 35 miles is the beginner. So I suppose you're looking at roughly 35 miles, give or take, and then 45 miles and then 55 miles. And then that's in, is that 24 hours? Yeah, I think it's 20. so you end up like camping um, out on the moors the night. Okay. And it's cold and wet. Not it's dark more, so yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> because you talk about you talk about in this book and all of you girls in your tent and you have your own little like r- old rose Titanic moment where you're just like <laughs> what? Like you all you thought that you all needed to get naked because you because that's how cold it, it sounds was. Sounds a bit like something else now. <laughs> all girls get naked in a tent. But that's but that's the the severity and you thought that, that could be your last night. Yeah, it's kind of, it does sound really dramatic, but it, it was actually that bad. I think I've got this real thing about I won't give up. I won't quit until until someone maybe physically pulls me away. Yeah. And I had this, I was adamant we were going to be okay. And I just, I knew that all of our kit was wet and like soaking wet. We couldn't light any food. Like we couldn't light the fire to make the food. So we we're all just shivering. And I thought we were all sitting our, we were too cold to take our clothes off originally. So our feet were just drenched. Everything was drenched. I said, yeah, we're just going to have to just, in our sleeping bags naked because it's the only way like otherwise we're just sat in our sleeping bag in wet clothes getting even colder you have to like so that's what we did we on each other right we, is yeah. that that's jellyfish isn't it that's jellyfish well they're also a myth as well i think but yeah no no i don't think it is i feel like i've done it <laughs> so this yeah it's just i i think it's incredible because i would have loved to be i did Oh, God. What's the name of the one that everyone does? Baby? Yes. No. I did something, like, less than that. This was before I got adventurous and loved hiking and whatnot. But I think we did something like 10 miles just through the local villages in, like, West Berkshire. And and we, and we I forgot a tent. That was the one thing I needed to bring was a tent. So then everyone <laughs> pitches up. And I'm that kid, like, um, has anyone got space? Thank God someone took me in. Mum and Dad, again, like, don't really... I kept signing myself up for these like really crazy things. And then they got to this 10 tours event. They had no idea what the hell it was. I just kind of signed myself up for it. They got there. There was this massive, massive operation. Like it's in Oakhampton camp in Dartmoor. It's like it was surrounded by army people. Like all these teams were doing it. It was a huge thing. Like it was quite a serious thing. Only afterwards they were like, I had absolutely no idea what you were doing. And I, we did make it back that day. Oh, fuck. But the first year, we actually, again, I've got to think about this. We didn't make it because we got timed out. So I've got to think about yeah. not, not doing something first time. I mean, it wasn't actually really thought of my own. I think a few of the girls were struggling, but I was being a bit of a martyr. Like, actually, girl. We were so cold that night. One of the girls in the other tent who we were, who were walking with, she got airlifted off the, off the tour that night because of, she had pneumonia. Not, uh, sorry, hypothermia. Like, we were that cold. It was that bad. <laughs> But then I still got up the next morning. I was like, come on, let's put our boots on, let's go. And we did get to the, we got to the 10th tour, the 9th tour, and we were timed out. We just went and made it back in time. I remember the apps, I was absolutely devastated. Like I've never been, never been so upset in all my life. And then when we got back to camp, my parents were there. I remember just being, I, think I said to them, I said to them, like, I promise I won't let you down next time. And they were like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, you're okay. Like... Um, and then obviously like, our feet were like torn apart. Like I think most of the people at trench foot, like it was just next year I led the team and, and we did do it. I think we were the first only f- all female team to come back. Not what like no one quit um, or dropped out. Um, so to come back with a full team is, is almost quite a good, it's quite a, an achievement in itself. And we were, and then obviously the weather was a better that year. So it was all relation to the, to nature again, like, and again, respecting it. but. 
But these moments definitely, you know, you took a you took a leadership role, definitely by the sounds of it. And these moments are kind of our driving force for what we go on to. And I think the more grueling and the more draining something is, it still sparks that passion. But yeah, that was it's obviously from quite a young, like you know quite young that I had this kind of stupid. But my mum again, like when they went, when they, went they did the Iron Man again, they were like. Yeah, yeah, we'll come, we'll come along and see, we'll see what it is. They were like, "What the fuck is this? Like, this is a huge thing. Like, what have you done this time?" Like, they just didn't really understand that I kept taking them to these things. And but yeah, I think ten tours totally shocked them. Like, didn't realize quite what it entailed. But then I've always, I still love hiking now. Like, I did three peaks last year on my own. Well, not on my own, but I drove it with the three peaks. I did it the year before as sort of a team led thing. I, I, in my head, when you do the three peaks, you in twenty four hours you're up and down. You're at the bottom of Snowden by the end. I don't even think we got to the top. We just got everything went wrong. The timers are wrong, and if you are delayed in traffic or you hit the wrong time, you, it really does scarper the idea. It's tighter than I thought. So then the year after, I said, right, let's get a car full of girls, just four of us, and then I'll drive it all, and we'll do it the twenty four hours. And they were like, okay, like scared of their wits but we all did it and it was you know we did it in really good time we didn't have to run up or down although one that said one of the girls broke her ankle coming down Ben Nevis just slip just slip that in there yep she carried on and then we did it she also did Garfell and soda with a broken ankle oh my gosh Terminator. so I think I'm <laughs> so you think I'm nuts she's even more nuts as we wrap up from all of that I just want to, you quickly tell us, um, what have you got coming up? You must have some crazy ass shit coming up in the future. So I'm trying to do a marathon, but that's more for fitness and to keep me on track. But I'm doing a charity boxing fight in April. Um, I've got a neighbour who's sadly got terminal cancer and doing it for him. But I'm actually very scared because, I mean, like I said, triathlon, that is very much a solo sport. Although I've got an opinion, I'm not very good at hitting people. So every time I did a little bit of training, I keep saying I'm sorry. Oh, really? And I think it's just, I hate it. So I think it's just, and it's also like the emphasis on you. Like everyone's watching me with obviously one other person, but that for me scares the shit out of me. I'm mad you're just kind of hidden under the crowd, aren't you? So yeah, I'm a little bit scared. And also my coordination is shocking. So what, in terms of your, like, your arms? All of it. Step, even the footwork is too much for me yeah like, <laughs> but okay but I mean yeah it's not you're not doing a sidestep it's just like moving you just need to move towards and away from the opponent yeah yeah easier said than done yeah throw them punches in you got that I end up bringing my feet together and then I'll be falling over like a bloody pirouetting but. can't you just try try envis- envisioning you must have done a run or something there was a complete like dickhead in the race or someone who like try to sabotage you or push you over. Can't you just plant their face on that person? This is true. Or that woman, the woman who made you sit and sit through that whole qualifying thing. This is true, yeah, yeah. Picture her. I have had my wetsuit pulled down during a swim, actually. You know, you're saying how rough it is. Someone literally got my wetsuit and pulled it down so that all the water would go in. Oh, sorry, I thought you meant, like, pulled down your pants. I was going to say, that's... We're obviously like, swimming really close to each other and he thought I was swimming over him or I was licking his his water or his lane. You got my like the zip and just pulled my zip so Oh, what a bitch. Doggy dog. Yeah, take him out. God. You got you've got a fundraiser for that, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. So it'd be what is that? I'll link it. I'll link it in the description. Obviously, just thank you so much for touching on your book and touching on your story and and there are Many other people like you who are coming on here and they're talking about their story. I'm so honoured that you brought Rosie's story to this podcast as well and that you've put it in print form because, because this is what life's about and we need to be knowing about people's stories even if, they're not in our, even if they're not in our lives. I think you're inspirational, Holly, and um, you just need to be giving, your pat, giving yourself a pat on the back every single freaking day because you are conquering a lot and more than most people will in a lifetime so i'm hoping someone's listening to this and they're googling iron man right now do it not watching the film but actually this iron man it's all just about carrying people's names 
If I was to go, I want someone to carry my name, my smile, you know, my love. I learned to love and that's what we need to be doing. We need to be carrying names on. That's true. We need to be carrying lives on because our lives do still go on and let's honour these beautiful people that we are blessed to have had, to have and who we will have. So thank you, Holly. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you. Sorry about the croaky voice, the coughing and the... I sound very husky today, that's for sure. Well, I hadn't even noticed. Yeah. <laughs> Debatable. <laughs> but no, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and I'll see you very soon, okay? Right. Cheers, Holly. Bye. Lots of love. Bye. And you, bye. You've been listening to Reset with Tom, the podcast with me, Tom Metcalf. If you want to find out more about the guests I have on each of my shows, take a look at the episode description on whatever app you're listening on and you'll find all the relevant info and links on that legend. You can follow me on Instagram at Reset with Tom. Now, I put a lot of work into this gig, so please always show love, show your support, give me a follow or a star review, and that would just be amazing. If the core of this show has resonated with you, please share your thoughts on my socials. And if you would like to feature on Reset with Tom the podcast, you know what to do. Just drop me a message. I would love to hear from you because remember, you are all inspirational. The theme music of the show is the incredible track Comes in Waves by Total Giovanni. Thank you so much for letting me use your sound, guys. The song is very important to me. Reset with Tom is produced by me and I will be here every Wednesday. So get that reminder set. See you next week, beautiful people.